Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today on the show, I have famous author Jeff Hayden. And not only is Jeff a famous author of The Motivation Myth, and he's a huge influencer on LinkedIn, he's received over 20 million views as part of his uh, association with Inc.com as a regular contributor there, but he's also a dedicated amateur athlete. So he does a lot of biking and cycling, as you'll hear in this episode. And I wanted to have him on because his book, The Motivation Myth, I thought was just absolutely fantastic. It touches on a lot of topics that a lot of people who listen to this show deal with all the time. Namely, the motivation to get out there and you know do our running, whether that's from a consistency standpoint or trying to achieve certain goals or anything in between. We also talk a lot about willpower in this episode. He devotes uh, a long section of the book of the book to willpower, and we touch on a lot of other things as well. And I think you'll you'll like this episode, and I really suggest you go out and buy the book. Um, he just did a great job with it. He's written a lot of things, and it's obvious uh, that he has a wealth of knowledge on not only this topic, but a variety of others as well. So I suggest you give him a look at uh, www.jeffhayden.com. He's also on Inc. He's on LinkedIn, um, and you can pick up his book, The Motivation Myth, wherever books are sold, and at a number of online retailers as well, like all the big ones, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, what have you. So I'm really looking forward to this episode. I think you'll like it. But before we get before we get into it, I just want to give a shout out again to Mercury Mile. They've been great with uh, with supporting the episode and supporting these podcasts. And I will say, if you want to help out the podcast, then help out, or I should say patronize our sponsors. Because when you do that, it definitely helps the show. So if you don't know already, Mercury Mile is fusing fashion and function for all runners. They create a personal shopping experience for both men and and women at any stage in their running journey. It's fun. It's easy. I signed up for it on my phone, and it uh, it really was very easy. That's for sure. Uh, First, you create your profile at mercurymile.com. Two, you pick a shipping date. And three, you receive and explore a curated box of incredible apparel from your personal stylist that matches your fit style in unique running needs keep what you love send back what you don't um i didn't send back anything let me just say that i didn't send back anything everything fit well and i liked everything i got so that was always that's always a good thing i figured i would like everything i did not think everything would fit so that was a, a pleasant surprise so it's free shipping free returns as always no subscriptions required what could be more fun than that try it today mercury mile Dot com. If you use my code RamblingRunner10 at checkout, it saves you 10 bucks on the stylist fee. Um, and that's the only fee you pay unless you decide to keep the gear. So that's always uh, always a good thing. And if you're anyone, if you're like me, well, frankly, you don't have time to go out there and shop. So having someone do it for you is a is a nice little treat. So anyway, I hope you like Mercury Mile. I hope you like this episode with Jeff Hayden. And let's get to it. Hello, Jeff, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's my it's a great pleasure to talk to you. I'm re- I've been looking forward to this. That makes two of us. I I just finished up your book uh, the other day, and I thought it was fantastic. The title, as I mentioned in the introduction, is "The Motivation Myth: How How Achievers Really Set Themselves Up to Win." And um, I love. First of all, it's a very catchy title. You are as you. Uh, you're kind of known um, in, a, in your writing circles as very good with titles. And I thought this title was particularly catchy. <laughs> well, thanks. But uh, the, the dirty little secret of that is that my editor at Random House came up with the title. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I can't even take credit. But you're right. For online writing, you know, headlines are, are a huge piece of it. Of course, the content has to pay off. But, you know, if you don't have an interesting or catchy headline, then nobody clicks to even see if your content's any good or not. Um, and that's true for books as well. But, you know, I, I struggled to come up with a good title for it. And she just said, how about this? And I thought, grudgingly, I thought, wow, that's better than anything I've got. <laughs> and so there you go. So it well, takes a team. There you go. Well, you kind of set up the book in like in, in, with the title, right? So the first half is kind of not debunking the motivation piece, because you don't, you don't say it's not, you never say that it's a negative, 
per se, right. but just that's right. not the most important thing. And then the second half of the book, you really dive into, okay, well, what really is the, the important thing or the important things that set people apart, which I thought was interesting. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't do you any good to, you know, you can posit theories all you want to, and that's great. But if there's no practical application of that, then it's just interesting, but it's not useful. And so, you know, my, my whole idea was, okay, let me, let me try to give you a different way to look at this, especially if you're a person who has either struggled to find motivation or has struggled to achieve some of the things you want to achieve. Let's give you a different way to look at that, the framework of that. And then let's show you some things that you can actually do so that you can achieve the goals that you want to achieve. So when did you decide to take these topics and just this subject at large and turn it into a book as opposed to just a series of, of blog posts? And as you as you mentioned in the book, that you, you write every day. So I'm sure you touched on many of these things at some point or another. But why why collect them all into one book? Uh, the the impetus for it, prob the, probably the, the biggest driver of it was – I was talking to Venus Williams, which, you know, if you're going to drop a name, there's a good name to drop. So I will. Um, and she was, you know, she, everybody knows who Venus is, but aside from tennis, she's also, she runs a fitness wear company that she started and she actually does the design work. She didn't just give her name to it and step back. She has an interior design company that she runs and she actually does a lot of the designs. So she has all these different fields where she's achieving at this really high level and Yet when we talked about that, she's at no time did she have this lightning bolt moment where she said, you know, oh, my gosh, I want to be a tennis player. And I know that's my life's purpose. And I'm going to win Wimbledon someday. And I have all the motivation that I need. And the same thing was true with her fitness wear stuff and her interior design. Actually, all it was is she thought, you know, her dad exposed her to tennis, she and her, and her sister Serena. And she liked it. And she thought, I would like to get better at this. And so that was, that's, that's a whimper of a lightning bolt, if you think about it. But that was really her goal is like, can I get better at this? And that process of following that is what took her to where she went. So I thought about that and I thought about a lot of the other extremely successful people that I am fortunate enough to get to talk to. And none of them had that lightning bolt moment. So I contrasted that with lots of people that either email me or talk to me when I do speaking or just there are plenty of folks who say, I feel stuck. I can't find motivation. I have things I think I want to do, but I can't seem to get started. So they're over there on the side waiting for this bolt or this burst of motivation to strike them so that they can embark on whatever it is they want to achieve. And the high achievers don't wait. They just find something they're interested in, and then they find a process that will help them improve so that they can work towards it. And so the real key of that motivation myth thing, and I promise I'm about to stop speaking because I know you're thinking, wow, he's gone way around the barn. But the, the real premise here is if you motivation isn't something that you should wait for, and it isn't something you have to wait for, and it isn't something that has to come to you. Motivation is something you can actually create on your own every day by this cool little process of just having something you're interested in, following a process that helps you improve even tiny little bits. Improvement always feels good. You know, whenever you do something a little better than you've done it before, it feels good and makes you feel happy. That gives you the motivation to go to the next day and start again. And that's really all you need. And it creates this cool little flywheel where every day you can recharge the motivation you need to keep going. And someday you find that you are where you wanted to be. There you go. Well, first of all, Jeff, let me, let me first tell you. You don't have to worry about talking too much. This is the Rambling Runner podcast, after all. It is the, called the Rambling Runner for a so reason. The title is literal, huh? All right. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't just alliteration. Uh, cool. Well, that's – but that, that really is what it comes down to, and it's, you know, the, the idea – if I can talk about something else real quick is, you know, the, the other thing that people get hung up on is we're taught to – you know, if you had this big, hairy, audacious goal in the Jim Collins speak, you know, you, you pick some huge, massive goal, like say to equate it to your audience, let's say that you want to run a marathon, but you don't really run. And so you go out and you run a mile today, you come home, you lay on your couch, you're whipped, you feel terrible, but you did your mile. But if you pop your head up and look across and say, 
oh my gosh, I have to do 26 of these, which is what you will do if you have that laser-like focus on the end goal. That's not motivating at all. That's incredibly defeating because the distance from here, that one mile that you barely managed to get through, and there, which is the 26, it's too big. And that oftentimes is where people quit. And so the whole idea that you need to have this big goal and always be focused on it, I think that screws up tons of people. The better way to go is say, okay, that's my goal. Let me create a process that will allow me to achieve that goal. And then I'm going to forget about the end result for a while. And I'm just going to focus on what I have to do today. And if you do it that way, if today's, if today's process was to go out and run that mile and you run the mile, you get to feel good about yourself because you did what you set out to do. And by feeling good, it's like, okay, I did that. Tomorrow's another day. I'm going to do what I have to do. And so I like to say, you know, set a big goal, but then forget your big goal and put your head down and focus on your process. Yeah, I love your quote in the book where you say, close the distance between here and there. It's kind of like a zooming out mechanism. And, and as, as I was reading your book, the one thing that I wrote down, and maybe this is because I'm a young father and I rely on on basically uh, on kitchen hacks, so to speak, is that, that our goals are kind of like crockpots. You set it and you forget it. There you go. And then the other thing that happens with with big goals is the opposite effect can also happen. And I remember this happened to me when I was still a long time since I was in college, but I can remember. But I was running then and I had this I had this idea that, you know, I wanted to run a half marathon and, and I had a time that I wanted to do it in and it was a very aggressive time. And so but that was my goal. And so every day I would go out and run and it seemed like because I was so focused on that end result and what I needed to do, I was constantly pushing myself to run a little bit farther or a little bit faster. You know, I became a slave to the stopwatch in the distance and didn't recover well, didn't take reasonable rest periods, didn't go out and do just kind of casual, you know, let's build up a little bit of stamina kind of runs. I was always pushing, pushing, pushing because all I could think about was I need to be able to do my 13 point whatever in X period of time. And I ended up messing up one of my knees and, and I never did get there because I was so focused on that, that end result that I couldn't take a step back and say, yeah, but the way to get there is not to kill yourself every day. You know, because you will not get there if you do so. So that's the other thing that happens when you focus on a really, really big goal. You can become such a slave to the idea of it that you don't train smart or you don't develop your skills in a smart way or whatever it might be. Or you just burn out. Yeah, I think the burnout piece is key. And especially if you couple that with injury, it's basically a recipe for disaster. Yep. Yeah. And I was I was I was reasonably fit. And, and I'm, I'm blessed with reasonable cardiovascular capability genetically. And so I was able to push really hard, but I was pushing harder than my body was ready for. And so little things started to break down and yeah. <laughs> and so before you know it, I was done for quite some time, which was really, really discouraging. And yet very common, I'm sure. If not everyone listening to this, maybe 95% have experienced something similar. Um, your host has certainly experienced that many number of times, not only in my running life, but also in my, uh, my previous basketball life. Um, and one thing you mentioned early in the book, which I love this quote, is that uh, um, motivation isn't something you have. It's something that you get from yourself. And it stems from this idea of, you know, the small – and frequent successes that make up an early immersion in a, in a situation or topic or endeavor that can lead to the motivation that's needed to then kind of sustain that effort in that virtuous cycle, like you mentioned. Yeah, there's a there's a cool thing. Whenever you're new to something, the gains are always like really fast. You know, that's the cool thing about being a beginner. The, it sucks to be a beginner because you have so far to go to be, if you're trying to be an expert, to be an expert. But at the same time, it's really fun to be a beginner because your improvement is really rapid and you can see really good gains. And so if you, if you focus too hard on how far you need to go, then you lose sight of the fact that it's really fun to enjoy all those wins early on because, you know, if you – 
I don't know, we'll use running again. If you never run and you go out and you run a mile today and a mile tomorrow and whatever, within a few weeks, you're out running twice as far, three times as far. Your time is a little bit quicker. You feel better. The whole thing is better early on. A year from now, if you're trying to wring, you know, a few more seconds per mile out of your times, those improvements are much harder to come by. And so you why not enjoy that fun part of being a beginner and seeing all those big improvements? And you can do that if you just focus on your process instead of that big end goal. And then someday you wake up and you realize that, oh my gosh, you know, when you do finally pop your head up, you look across and say, wow, I've come a really long way. And that gives you a big burst of motivation to say, you know what, this is really working and I'm getting there and I have closed my gap. And that feels really, really good. And it then gives you the confidence to say, you know what? I, all I have to do is put my head down and keep following my process and I'm going to get there because you have actual results to make you feel confident. Confidence doesn't come from staring in the mirror and saying, you know, I'm great or I'm going to crush it today. I mean, that helps a little bit. Real confidence comes from earning some success where you can say, you know, I worked hard and I did that and here's where I am. And that takes you to a whole nother level in terms of your ability to keep going. And we're talking a lot in terms of like the, the novice, right? So we're talking about right now, like the novice uh, runner. And um, you can talk about anyone starting an endeavor, you know, trying to get the early successes. But I feel like that is also relative. So you have someone who maybe is taking a step up. So maybe they've been training for two or three years and they take on that challenging half marathon PR. You can also approach that same that same endeavor with this process of the the small successful gains, like you could all of a sudden have a couple of hot miles in your long run that are a half marathon pace, you know, so you kind of gear up towards that, that goal pace slowly, but surely, as opposed to just, you know, going out for an eight mile tempo run, hoping to knock out that half marathon pace, you know, that first hard workout. Yeah. You can, you can drop yourself into a process based based improvement program wherever you are on the spectrum. And, and to use Venus as an example, again, going into every year, she names every year Grindfest, whatever the, the year is. So like this year is Grindfest 2018. And she has specific goals, not for tournaments that she wants to win or rankings or things like that, but she has specific technique or skill goals. And she focuses on working on those. And you would think, okay, here's an elite athlete that's top 10 in the world. You know, what are you really working on? But she has tons of stuff and she showed me her list and she has more than she can do in a year. <laughs> and so, but it's still, you drop yourself in and say, okay, where am I now? Where do I want to get to? What's my process to bridge that gap? And let me put my head down and do the work. And it does work. Yeah. And I think sometimes people conflate the idea of having small successes without having big or ambitious goals. And they're just two things you have to have in your mind at the same time. It's not an either or situation. You have both at the same time. Early on in the book, you, you said something that I was thought was very interesting. You didn't explore it because it wasn't really on topic with, with the general theme of the book, but I did find it interesting and I wanted to bring it up to you. You wrote that all, nearly all successful people I've met are on the downside of advantage when they started. <laughs> yeah, I, that is absolutely true. I think there's a, there's a, there is a, a, there is actually an advantage of being the person who starts from a disadvantaged position. And I know that sounded kind of mouthy and they're or wordy, and I'm sure there's a better way that I could put that. But when you have to, work hard in order to overcome some of the disadvantages that you might have, then that teaches you the skills to say, all right, I work hard. I know how to follow a process. I know how to get to where I need to go. And that develops that confidence that you need to say, I can do this because, you know, we're all another thing in, in the book is my concept of being a serial achiever where you don't have to be just one thing and you can achieve a variety of different things, either sequentially or somewhat consecutively. So people who have to overcome, who have to work hard in order to overcome something, whether it's lack of education or connections or whatever it may be, the skill that you gain by doing that also gives you the confidence that the next time you have a challenge you want to overcome, you can say, okay, this is going to be really hard and I don't really have any advantages and I'm starting from a really tough spot. 
but I know how to do this. And I know that if I put the work in, I can do this. And that's a, that's a huge thing. You know, you and I both know people who had lots of advantages when they started something and squandered them because when they got to a tough spot, they didn't know how to push past it because they hadn't had to put in the work and earn that success. I look, I, I see one of those people every single day, Jeff, it's when I wake up and look in the mirror. So I know exactly <laughs> what you mean, mean by that statement. Um, well, I yeah, would argue with you though, because it's, I know exactly what you mean though, because you can, you can look and say, wow, I haven't achieved what I want to. And I have all these things that are positive that would help me to do that. But that's easy to do, especially if you have high standards for yourself, because you're never going to say, look how far I've come. You're going to say, wow, it should be more, you know, I, like I have, I don't know, I average about 1.7 million readers a month on Inc., which is a really big number. But in my mind, it should be two <laughs> or it should be three or it should be something because you get used to where you are and yet you want to do more. Right. And there's there's two sides of the coin there, right? There's the people who maybe were born to advantage who maybe don't have the grit at least early on in Endeavor to kind of withstand some of the early setbacks. But the other side of that are the people who were born to disadvantage, so to speak, who, if it didn't break them early on, were hardened by the experience and then were able to capitalize um, on those skills later on in life. It actually reminds me of in the introduction to Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about the uh, Canadian youth juniors and how it's set up. Um, so, you know, chronologically, the age cutoff is January 1st. So if you're born the first two or three months of the year, you're more likely to make all-star teams later on because when you're younger, you're, you're, you're bigger and more coordinated than some of the kids later on in the year because, shoot, when you're seven, six months matters. And the, right. the, the corollary to that was that if you were, say, born in October, November, December, and you somehow made it onto those all-star teams, you were more likely to be an NHL Hall of Famer than someone born in January or February because you were hardened by the experience. Right. What gets lost in, and I, I agree with everything you just said, and it, it is a very savvy look. You know, obviously Malcolm knows his stuff. What's interesting about that, though, is people will read that and say, you know, they'll they'll equate the hopefully being born in January or February if you want to be an NHL player to whatever it is that they are trying to do. And they'll look and say, well, I don't have that advantage. But he's talking about people that are going to play in the NHL or be NHL Hall of Famers. Most of us, you know, we'd like to achieve something like that in whatever our pursuit is, but we're probably not going to. But you can be 80 or 90 percent of that, which if you think about it, is a really, really big achievement. And so the idea that you have to be born in that certain slot in order to get to the 80 or 90th percentile, you don't. Clearly you don't because those guys are like, what, 0.001% or something of the hockey population. So I think it's the, the trick is to just say, okay, I know I have these disadvantages, but what do I have that I can use to help me get going so that then when I'm a little ways along, some of those advantages start to come to you. And it's a great example of that is like networking. I know lots of people that will say, you know, well, like you've talked to Richard Branson. So why don't you connect me with Richard Branson? I'm like, well, I can't do that because I don't know. Him. I don't know him that well. He's not picking up my calls. <laughs> Just because I talked to him doesn't mean that. Um, but they're like, well, you know, I don't know how to get there otherwise. And it's. You start at the bottom and you connect with the people that you can connect with and you provide value to them and you give instead of looking to receive right away and you build those real relationships. And in time, it sounds weird, but you actually get to bump your way up because, you know, you will meet other people through them. You'll dip a little bit higher. You'll dip a little bit higher. And before you know it, you're interacting with and our colleagues or peers or they're, they're in your connection group, whatever you want to call it with people that you never imagined you would, but you had to start at the bottom and you have to build from where you are. And that's true with whatever you're trying to do. See what you have, decide what you can best do with that, and then move on. Uh, the I, I write about Kirk Hammett, the Metallica guitarist in the book. Very nice guy. When he was in high school, no, he was out of high school and he was in a band and they actually had a record deal 
but they weren't making any money because record deals don't actually pay <laughs> except for the one percenter band. And so he was riding his bicycle 25 miles one way to take guitar lessons because he was still trying to be a better guitarist, even though he was in a band that had a record deal and was touring. And so that's a great example of, okay, what do I have and what can I do and how can I leverage that? And if you do that, you build all those little blocks, and before you know it, you have a really cool tower of achievement. That's for sure. And another thing you mentioned, this was fairly early on in the book, I think it was Chapter 2, was um, the idea of sharing goals and how that um, – I think I, I you, you had a very interesting opinion on this, and I think you kind of set up as set up as a binary thing, and I actually have a corollary I want to throw at you later on. But you mentioned how sharing goals and intentions – is not necessarily a positive thing. Yeah, the, there's research about this that, and it depends on how you do it. And so I'll get to that part at the end. But there's research that shows that in the book I use the example of hiking the Appalachian Trail, which is a you know it's through the mountains from Georgia to I think it goes all the way to Maine. Um, it's 20, 2,200 miles. It usually takes people three or four months. And you decide that you're going to do that. Let's say I've decided I'm going to do that. So I go to a party, and you're there, and I'm telling you, yeah, I'm going to hike the Appalachian Trail this summer, and I'm talking about how fun it's going to be and what stuff I'm going to buy and the fact that I'm going to get a cool trail nickname because nobody goes by their name. They get a nickname. And I'm talking about all this stuff. And the fact that I am talking about having hiked the Appalachian Trail in that way makes it way less likely that I will actually do that because I'm getting a little bit of that emotional fulfillment feeling out of talking about it. So the fact that it's, it's almost like in my mind I'm kind of there, and it's the same with the research that shows that planning a vacation is as fun for most people as actually taking the vacation because it's that you see yourself there and you, you experience it somehow weirdly vicariously. So the idea of sharing, here's what I'm going to do and then talking about it, people think that that's a, a good peer pressure thing because it will make you hold me to it. The best way to do that is to say, all right, I'm going to hike the Appalachian Trail if I tell you that. But then to immediately go to, and here's my process. Here's what I'm going to do. And so this week I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And so check in with me at the end of the week and make sure I have done what I said I was going to do. Then peer pressure works because you're asking people to hold you to the commitments you're making that will get you there as opposed to, you know, hey, check in with me a month, in a month and, you know, see how I'm doing. Because in the end of that month, I'm probably going to have five excuses for why I haven't gotten started yet, but I will. And so that idea of talking about your goals for peer pressure point of view, make sure that you talk about it in terms of hold me to my process. And that will make it much more likely that you will get there. If you're looking for an accountability buddy, which a lot of people like. I want to take a quick break to talk about Mercury Mile. And the best thing about Mercury Mile for me is that it's such a time saver. So obviously they have great stuff. The, the, the boxes they've sent me have been fantastic. But as much as I like the stuff they send me, what I like most is the time it saves me. So if you're like me and you don't have a lot of time to just walk around a mall or I don't even really have malls anymore. At least they're going away. But to spend time shopping different stores, looking at different fabrics, trying to find out what are your possible options from a clothing or accessory or even nutrition uh, standpoint, you know, let Mercury Mile take care of it for you. Let your stylist take care of it for you and send you the stuff. And if you like it, you keep it. If you don't, you can just return it. So uh, everyone out there does their online shopping already, which is nice. But the, the downside to, down, to online shopping is that sometimes you just don't know if you're going to like what you're getting. But you don't have to worry about that with this one. You're going to have a stylist picking up for you, which is like getting a recommendation from a friend. You can trust it. And if you don't like it, shoot, just send it back for free. Nothing to lose. So, again, Give Mercury Mile a shot. If you do, promo code RamblingRunner10 saves you 10 bucks on the stylus fee. And now, back to the interview. So what was yours? What were you going to say? Okay, so I'm going to dive into that for in a second. I am excited to share it with you because I feel like it was, it was a good one. But before we get there, I do want to say that um, I can totally see your point about the idea of getting social capital when you share your big idea or goal with a novice. Right. So say like I tell my aunt I'm going to run across America. 
like that's that's amazing and then like i can live off that social capital and then not do it because my mind is satisfied um then i'm already getting i was only doing it for social reasons in the first place and here i am getting social rewards just out of the idea so why would i want to follow through i've already reached my goal so to speak um however so to my point before was that i think it's different when you share goals with a person or a community who's experienced in the endeavor that you're about to pursue. So say, if I go tell my mom, I'm going to write a book, that's different than if I tell you, I'm going to write a book because you're going to take that and immediately you're going to go to like the 10 to 20 or 30 things in your head that you know might trip up a new author. Whereas my mom might just be like, I love you. That sounds great. Well, that's, that's a really good point. And it leads to something else that I write about that, I have taken a fair bit of heat for, and it's the idea where I say, you don't need a coach, you need a pro. (laughs) And what you described, though, is exactly what I'm talking about, because if you tell me that you're going to write a book, and I've never written a book, but I've written a few articles, and, you know, I'm kind of sort of imagined myself to be a writer, then I'm going to be like, yeah, that sounds great, and I'm going to give you a couple little soft tips, and, you know, but I don't really know what I'm talking about. And so that all works. But if you tell me you're going to write a book, and it's you know, I have written books. I'm going to immediately say, okay, well, if you're going to do that, here's what you're going to need to do. Here's what you're going to have to watch out for. I'm going to be able to give you real world, cold eyed, practical advice, guidance, tips, because I have been there and done that and know how that works. And people run into that all the time. Forget the part about the sharing goals, but if you go to somebody, I don't know, let's use your running stuff. If I decide that I want to run a marathon and I go to my local gym and get the personal trainer there and say, you know, hey, I, I want to run a marathon. Well, we're going to go through this process, you know, because he's been trained to do it this way, where we he assesses my fitness levels. He talks about my interests. He talks about how much time I have to put into it and what I want to do. And I'm going to get this mamby-pamby little training program that isn't necessarily designed to help me succeed, but is designed to make me feel good about the fact that at least I have a training program. Whereas if I go to somebody, you know what I mean, whereas if I go to somebody that has run three or four marathons and say, I want to run a marathon, they're going to look at me and say, okay, but here's what you have to do. And I would much rather be given a here's what you have to do program, however hard it might be, that has a really, really strong chance of success than I would get the soft, fuzzy, sugar-coated version that isn't as hard and feels a little bit better for me to take on because I... It's not as daunting, but almost has, has almost no chance of getting me to where I want to be. Because at the end of, let's say, six months, say you work at something for six months, all the effort you've put into it, whether it was a little or a lot, it's all gone. It's all behind you. So it doesn't matter. What you really care about is where am I right now? And so I would rather work hard and say, wow, I'm in a really good place than work half-assed and go, wow. This isn't working out at all because if nothing else, one, I wasted a lot of time, and two, I'm probably going to give up because I'm not getting anywhere. Right, and as you say in the book, the Hawthorne effect works. So if you're being monitored, you're more likely to achieve, and I think adding on to that, if you're being monitored by, as you said, if you're being monitored by pros, you're even exponentially more likely to succeed. Yeah, I was – there's a a guy that – where I used to live, his name is Jeremiah Bishop, and I wrote about him in the book. He's a professional mountain biker, and he's won national championships. I think he finished third in Leadville. For, so for endurance mountain bike folks, they'll know that that's a big thing. Uh, he's a big deal in his sport, and I wanted to ride a Grand Fondo that, that he actually created, and it's like 102 miles and four mountains, 11,000 feet of climbing, and I had like four months to train, and I hadn't ridden a bike. <laughs> but I thought that would be really fun. And so I went to him and said, hey, I want to ride your Grand Fondo. And he said, this year? And I said, yeah. And he said, you might as well not even try. And I said, no, I really want to try. I really want to do this. What do I need to do? And so my first day, I had to go ride for three hours. Ooh. <laughs> Waiting. Oh, I know. But And I even said to him, I said, dude, I can't do that. And he said, you can. He said, you can do that. You know, it's not going to kill you. <laughs> you can pull it off. But in order for you to get to where you want to be and to be able to ride this thing in a reasonable time when the day comes, you got a lot of work to do and you don't have time to fool around. And so he created a, a very daunting program for me that sucked for quite a while. But then I started to realize that, wow, I'm getting stronger. I'm getting fitter. Everything about it was working, and I got to the day, and I did better than I expected to do, and it was awesome. But he that was my point of if I had gone to someone who had 
who was not a cyclist and who had not done those things and understood what it took, then I would have gotten a program that would not have worked. But I went to him and I got the clear, no sugar coat. All right. If you want to do that, here's what you want to do. Now, I'm not saying that everybody listening should pick some goal and then pick some really, really compressed time period to try to achieve it, because me doing that was sort of stupid. Um, it, it, it worked, but it was kind of stupid. But you can be realistic about your time frame and go to somebody who has been there and done that, like you said, and they will tell you what you need to do. And we always – I think a lot of people fall into the trap – I know we're all individuals, and I know we're all special and unique, but in a lot of fields, we're really not. You don't have to reinvent a wheel and get this bespoke, totally customized program just for you. What works for most people is going to work for you, and besides that, if you're new to it, you don't even know. So follow it for quite some time, and then when you get enough experience, you can say, you know, I can tweak this, and I might modify that because of who I am and how I perform. Great. But right up front to just say, well, that's not going to work for me. Well, how do you know? How, how do you have a clue what will work for you if you don't know? So there are perfectly good wheels out there, and there is no reason to run around trying to reinvent them. That's a great point. And I think one thing that's come up uh, as a common theme when I've talked to experienced coaches and a few professional runners that I've had on the show, even though most of my, most of my guests are amateur runners, we've had a couple, a couple pros on here is that kind of the idea of trusting the process. A lot of that also means being flexible with your timelines. Yes. Because if you're trusting the process, but you're hard and fast on the timeline, then if you get any setbacks at all, you're going to be disappointed. Whereas if focus, if you just focus solely on the timeline and zoom out from the goal, then the calendar will kind of take care of itself because there are going to be unexpected yep. things that pop up. And that's a really good point about another reason why I think people quit a lot of stuff. If we say, say we take losing weight as an example, you know, you, you go on a diet and you have a plan and you're following it. And then one day at lunch, you blow it. And then our tendency then is to say, well, I already screwed up today, so I might as well just eat what I want and I'll start again tomorrow. <laughs> but you, you blow today, you blow today, and then it's really, really hard to get back on the diet horse tomorrow. And then you say, well, you know, this week is shot, so I'm going to start again Monday. And before you know it, you're gone. But the better response to that is just to say, you don't have to kill yourself over the fact you blew lunch. Just say, okay, I blew lunch. Fine. <laughs> Not the end of the world. I'll be getting back on the horse and whatever I was supposed to be doing for dinner is what I'm going to do. And it, you can take a minor setback and just absorb it because there will always be minor setbacks. You are not going to be perfect. And if you give yourself permission to not be perfect, but to be say 90 for 95% perfect, think how far you go. If you do that, uh, I told my, I came up with this. I'll use it someday. Um, I was talking to my wife about, I'd been doing something, I was lifting, and I had this period where I had to finish something, and I didn't feel very good for a little bit, and so I, I was out of the gym for about a week and a half, and went and worked out, and, you know, felt weaker, I'd, I'd slipped a little bit, and so I came home, and I said, you know, I really got to find a way to quit, I need to stop starting over, <laughs> which is what happens when you think you've blown that diet day, and you say, okay, I'm just going to let it go, and then Monday, I'm starting again, because really what you're doing is you're starting over, and it sucks to start over, when you've made some gains and then you slip back and go, God, I gotta do this again? That's horrible. So though giving yourself permission or at least not beating yourself up when you have a misstep or you have a setback will help you keep from starting over, over and over again, which I think is really important because it's all about the long haul. It's not, you don't have to be perfect every day. Nobody is. I couldn't agree more with the idea of, of focusing on the long term versus the short term. Um, you know, especially for something that should be a lifelong endeavor or could be a lifelong endeavor. You know, I mean, so whether it's running or just being active or what have you, um, you know, there's so many different things you can do. But if you're if you're consistent in the long haul, you're definitely going to be setting yourself for success, right? I mean, just like for you, you can be writing books or you could be writing blog posts or you can be doing ghostwriting. But if you're writing consistently, it really doesn't matter. You're going to be able to kind of duck in and out of each of those endeavors. Yep. Yeah, and uh, I was, I was going to say that um, – and now I lost it, so <laughs> that's okay. Sorry, sorry about that. No, it's fine. I'll say this all is a nice segue into the section I think um, my listeners might get the most out of. I, mean, I think this book is great. 
all the way through. I really enjoyed it. But I think the willpower section was the one for me that I, I kind of you know, read and reread because I really liked it. And I was like, man, this, this is gold. And um, I, first of all, congratulations. You did a great job. Chapter six is great. But I want to say, I think, I think it starts with, and these are your words, it starts with eliminating as many choices as possible. And I'm talking about, you know, you know, achieving, um, not just achieving goals, but having the kind of willpower that you need that starts with eliminating as many choices as possible. And, and as you say here, um, let me hear, choices, ease, and convenience are the enemies of willpower. <laughs> yes. All right. So, so what I mean by that is, you know, everybody's, I think, familiar with the concept of decision fatigue where if you have to make a ton of decisions throughout the day, by the end of the day, you're burned out, you're shot, you can't apply the same mental energy, and you just, it's kind of a whatever. And there's tons of research that shows that, like, even in the judicial system, like, the, if you're going to court and the judge is making a decision, you want to either be first thing in the morning or the first hour after lunch. <laughs> you do not want to be close to 5 o'clock because they have decision fatigue, too. So, but the premise is, if you... You want to have a finite amount of willpower, and I do think we can develop more willpower, but the easier way to go is to create situations where you don't have to exercise any willpower at all, and that means eliminating choices. So, simple example, if you drink a lot of soda and you want to drink more water, if you always have two or three water bottles on your desk within reach, then you don't have to make a decision when you go to the refrigerator, do I grab soda, do I grab water? It's right there, you move on. You know, it's it's the, like my one of my killers is ice cream. If there is ice cream in the house, I am going to, seriously, I am going to eat it. <laughs> I, I know that I shouldn't, and I know I eat too much of it when I do, but I'm going to do it. And so the move for me is just not have it in the house. Um, there's tons of other stuff people do. Like if your goal is to work out first thing every morning, then lay your workout clothes out right beside the bed. And when you get up, put them on. Don't make a choice. If it's eating healthier, if you eat the same thing for lunch every day, which I know a ton of people that do, and I basically do too. If you're not making a decision over eating healthy versus eating what you have every day, Again, you're not having to make a choice. So the, the whole idea of going through your day deciding between the choice you want to make and the choice that, you know, maybe if you get weak, you'll make. If you can eliminate those, then you have – you keep your reserves of willpower for the decisions that you have to make and that you can say, you know what, yes, I'm going to do this. Um, you know, I get up in the morning, and my goal is to start working right away, and so – you know, my, luckily my commute is two flights of stairs, so that's kind of easy. But, you know, I get up and I have my stuff out and I know what it is I'm going to start doing in the morning. And I have a protein bar and, and a drink and I sit down. And so within 10 minutes, I'm working. And it works really well because if I have something that I know I want to do and I get that done right away, then that feels good. That gets me that momentum of, of momentum of, oh, okay, cool. What's next? And it sets you up for a really good day. Whereas if, at least for me, if I kind of ease into the day and I take some me time and, you know, maybe check some emails and browse around the internet and stuff, you have to physically switch gears and say, okay, now I'm going to start working. And I, I find that to be hard or it's harder than just getting up and flowing right into, okay, my stuff is set up. I know what I'm doing. Off I go. You know, if I'm, if I have an article that I'm going to write, like I have one that I'll write first thing in the morning and I've already got, I know what my headline is. I've got a couple of intro sentences. It will be sitting there on my desktop when I click my mouse and that's what I'll do. I'll tell you, I, I've, I have an experience with both sides of what you just said. So I'm an early morning runner. I set out my stuff the day, the night before. I can't have it next to my bed though. It has to be literally downstairs. So that I can't, I can't put on my clothes and then climb back into bed. I need to leave the room. Well, there you go. That's, that's the same as in college. I put my alarm clock across the room because it was right by the bed. I would click it. But if I had to get up and go turn it off, I was out of bed, and then it was like, okay, I'm up. No, I know exactly what you mean. It, and people, that's the thing. We all know ourselves well enough to know the things that we struggle with. And so all you have to do is – create this architecture around your life that allows you to not have to struggle. Like you said, if you've got to go down the stairs to put your clothes on, well, you're not going to get back into bed and you know yourself well enough that that works. So why not do that? Why have to force yourself every day to push through something that you struggle with? Why not just make it automatic? 
Yeah, it's, it's having the self-awareness to look at some of those, those things um, is a little bit easier said than done. But once you start the process, it's easy to go down that rabbit hole. One of the things that I found out about myself when I was doing this sort of self-examination was that on days where I would work from home, or in the very rare instances where I was at home by myself on the weekends, I have two young kids, so it doesn't happen very often, I would eat horribly because the fridge was right there. Whereas if I was working from work, I wouldn't eat horribly unless for some reason I like, you know, went to a drive through or lunch or something. But because I've already brought my lunch and I'm not going to go raid the fridge and eat other people's lunches, I was kind of, as you put it, the architecture was already established for me to kind of stay on the correct path. Yeah, and the, the thing that I, I want to – I know people are probably listening and saying, okay, that sounds really restrictive, and it sounds you know like you're this dictator over your life, and that doesn't feel like much fun or whatever. But I would argue that what feels worse is when – let's say that you're somebody that likes to work out every day. If you decide you're not going to work out today, for whatever the reason might be, there is some point during the day or later that you feel bad because you didn't do what you set up to do. It, it stinks to do that. So I would rather have what feels like a rigid framework, but it's actually one I created. So it's empowering because I created it that lets me do the things that I want to do because that means at the end of the day, you get to feel really good about yourself. You don't have to feel bad. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't feel guilty. You don't have any of that stuff. So isn't that a lot more fun than just feeling like you have this total free will you know, because if, yeah, <laughs> I, I fell apart there. But but like you with your refrigerator, in a free world, will world, you would eat whatever you want, whenever you want. And that's fine once in a blue moon, but it doesn't get you to where you want to be in lots of stuff. And it doesn't feel good to you. And, and it's not what you're setting out to do. So why not create a setup where that's easy for you? And you get to feel good about yourself because you did what you set out to do. And we're not talking about, you know, the nine best ways for you to get out the door and paint the fence. We're talking about the best ways for you to get out the door and embark on a project that you're doing because you enjoy it, which is kind of the backbone behind all of this. Yeah, and because it's something that you've decided would either be fun to do or they would be fulfilling to do or that will get you to a better place in your life. It's all positive stuff. And so if you create some choice architecture around it, that allows you to get to these positive places, then actually the choice architecture is positive too because it enables you to get to where you want to go. There you go. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for all of the time. I really appreciate this, and thank you even more so for writing the book. I, I really enjoyed it, like I said, already several times <laughs> during this episode, uh, but it's true. So the last thing I wanted to bring up before we get going, again, thank you so much for coming on, is the I can't versus I don't um uh, kind of a paradox, not paradox, that's not the right word, but kind of setting, setting that up because it's something that I immediately started doing after reading about it. And to, to give an example would be say right now, instead of saying, I can't interrupt my guests during the show, that's not professional. Say, I don't interrupt guests during the show. Yeah. And then just kind of going yeah, with that. The, the premise behind that is their researchers did this study and they, they took three groups of people and the goal the people's goal was to adopt a new fitness habit. That was the over a period of six weeks. And so they gave them the fitness habit that they were supposed to adopt, and then they were giving different coping strategies. One group got no coping strategy at all. They were just told, hey, here's your habit. Go at it. Another group was told whenever they felt their willpower flagging or they were deciding whether they should do it that day or not to say, you know, I, I can't miss a workout. That was their coping strategy. And then the other group was told to say, I don't miss workouts. So at the end of the six weeks, I believe it was three out of 10 of the people that had no coping strategy at all had managed to stick with their new fitness habit, which is cool. Uh, I think it was either, I think it's seven out of 10. I don't have it right in front of me, but I think seven out of 10 of the I don't group stuck with their habit and only one. Yeah, and only one out of 10 of the I can'ts stuck with their habits. So saying I can't miss a workout was actually less helpful than not having any coping strategy at all. And the premise behind it is I can't goes back to what we talked earlier about earlier. It's a choice. So you're, you're not, you're saying, Oh, I can't miss a workout. Immediately you start negotiating with yourself and you go, well, but I can because, you know, I could always do it in the morning or I'll do twice tomorrow or you come up with all these things and you have to exert willpower. And we are terrible at making the right decision lots of times. The I don't people 
didn't see it as a choice. They saw it as a, hey, this is part of my identity. You know, you have kids. In the morning, do you have to wake up and, and motivate yourself to take care of your kids? Uh, no, me personally, no. Me personally, no. <laughs> well, and I don't think most people do because if you're a parent, you take care of your kids. That's part of your identity. So the I don't thing is an identity statement that says, I don't do this. This is not who I am. This is not what I do. And if you if you use that periodically when you need it and then you stick with your habit, then that habit also becomes part of your identity. You're a person who, you know, if you're a runner, when you first start out to run, you are a person who goes running. And then at some point in your mind, you flip over and you consider yourself a runner. You are part of the running community. You see yourself as a runner. And it's much easier to go out and run when running is part of your identity. If parenting is part of your identity, it's much easier to parent. If you're a leader as opposed to a supervisor, you know, the first time you're put in charge of people, you're a supervisor and you're kind of telling them what to do and stuff. At some point you flip over and you go, in your mind, you see yourself as a leader. And so it makes it much easier to lead people because that's who you are. And so the whole I don't thing is a great way to either adopt a new habit or to try to discard a bad one by just saying, you know, I don't miss workouts or I don't show up late or I don't miss commitments or whatever else it is because it leaves you no room to negotiate. And it just says, this is who I am and this is how I will act. There you go. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. What's the best way for listeners to follow to follow you and to, to read some of your writings? Uh, if you go to Inc.com and just search my name, there's about probably 1,600 articles, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know. It's, it's yeah. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I think I have about 960,000 followers, something like that, and I do engage with people. So if you if you connect with me on LinkedIn and you have questions or want to talk or, or anything else, I actually do respond. Um, and those are probably the two easiest ways. There you go. And pick up his book. It's available kind of anywhere books are sold. Most people buy books online, and it certainly is there as well. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rambling Runner podcast. This episode was with Jeff Hayden. I think he's a fascinating guy. I really loved his book, The Motivation Myth, and I really suggest you go out and pick it up. Um, not only is it available in hard copy, but it's also on Audible as well, which is, hey, if you listen to podcasts, then you're probably going to be down with audiobooks. That's for sure. Also, big shout out to Mercury Mile. Give them a shot. I would say um, there's really nothing to lose. If you don't like this stuff, you just send it back. So the only thing you'd pay for is the stylus fee, and you get $10 off of that if you use the code RAMBLINGRUNNER10 is the promo code for the show. Use that at checkout. You save 10 bucks. It's super easy, and you support the show. So I know I would really appreciate it. So thanks a lot, and to everybody out there, happy running.